Well, good morning and welcome to the Stories Museum District campus and thank you to those of us who are joining us online as well. Um, if we haven't met before, my name is Meredith Kirk Thompson and I've been a member here at the Story for about seven years, but funny enough, this is I think only my third Sunday to be at this campus with you guys. I'm normally over at Timber Grove where I serve and even sometimes have the opportunity to preach, so it's a really special treat to get to be with you today. Um, I'm actually a full-time Krav Maga instructor and part-time seminary student. Both of those things are a pretty shocking turn of events in my life, um, especially the seminary part because I became pretty skeptical of church at a young age. Um, but I get to share some of that story with you today, and, and I'm excited for that. Um, so we're in the final week of the sermon series called I'm Out, responding to three reasons why people leave the church. And today we're talking about what I think is probably the most common complaint that I've heard from believers and unbelievers alike, and that's that the church is full of hypocrites. And unfortunately, if you're in this room today, you've probably experienced some hypocrisy in the church. Maybe you uh, felt the church shame or reject you at one of your lowest moments in life. Or maybe you've seen church leaders who were preaching ferociously against really particular sins like adultery only to find out that they were guilty of it themselves. Maybe you just showed up to church because you heard that's where you would find a supportive and loving community, and instead you just felt like an outsider of this weird club that you couldn't be a member of unless you used all the same Christian lingo and adhered to some weird Christian dress code and pretended like everything was fine even when it wasn't. And if you have been... Um, affected by any kind of hypocrisy in the church, I just want to start by saying that I'm sorry and that I understand how much that hurts. I know how the failure of the church can really cut you to your core and make you want to walk away from it all. You know, oftentimes in response to that saying that the church is full of hypocrites, I hear, I hear people say, well, the church is full of people and people are sinful, so what do you expect? And while that may be a reality, I don't think it's an excuse for us. Hypocrisy creates major obstacles around the gospel. And if we want to lead people to a genuine experience with Jesus, then we have to take seriously what Paul said in Romans. This is Romans 6.22. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So we're no longer slaves to sin. We don't serve ourselves anymore. Instead, we serve Christ, and we serve the mission that he gives us to share the gospel and to live out the way that it has transformed our lives. Because if we're not obedient to that mission, then we're just living however we want to live, and we're labeling it Christianity, and that's dishonest, and it's confusing. And we will never entice someone to experience the gospel when we make make it look entirely different from what it is. And so I think if we want to counter hypocrisy in the church, we need to be submitting ourselves completely to God and living missionally. Now, this idea of a mission has been pretty relevant in my life recently. If you don't know me, I just got married on November 5th, and it was beautiful and wonderful. Thank you. One person clapped. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, November 5th turned out to be potentially one of the most controversial dates we could have chosen, because uh, I don't know if you remember, but that was also game six of the World Series. 
And both of us and pretty much everyone who attended our wedding was heavily invested in seeing the Astros win. So we were really conflicted because we wanted to enjoy our wedding, but then we also wanted to watch the game. And full disclosure, we ended up shutting down the reception about an hour early because um, we felt like it was our mission to watch the game as if that would help them win. Um, I'm not saying that's why they won, but they did win. So you're welcome. Um, now, our mission doesn't really have anything to do with the Astros. But as we prepared for our marriage, we had a lot of conversations with each other and with people um, that we really look up to in the church and in our families. And through those conversations, we came up with a mission statement. And that mission is to hold each other accountable to the radical commitment of the word of God so that we can serve one another, our family, and community in the love of Christ. Now, that word community kind of has a lot of layers for us, but one of those layers specifically refers to the story, the community here, and the non-religious people that this church wants to reach. If you're not familiar, it's the story's mission to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. And so part of the reason why we feel so strongly about that being a community that we serve is because this church has been a really big part of our relationship. We actually met at the first ever Timber Grove launch service. So this was um, January of 2020, and the story had just announced that we were going to be one church in two locations, and they held this event um, as kind of our big introduction into the Heights area and to let people know that our permanent home was coming, and we held that at Eureka Heights Brewery. And so what's crazy is that we had some overlap in our attendance, and not just for a couple of weeks. I mean, for years, we attended this church at the same time. But we never met because we were always at different services. And so here we were this particular Sunday. It was January of 2020, right before the pandemic, and we both showed up to volunteer at the launch. And we ended up meeting right before the service. And what's wild to me, and I have to give some major credit to Kat Bruff, because when I asked her to find a picture of the Timber Grove service, she also discovered that there is a picture of the first time Hunter and I met and the first time we had a conversation together, which is just wild. And I think this picture is actually pretty funny. So that's me with my back to the camera, and I have this giant bag that's the size of my body that I never noticed until now. Um, that's Hunter on the left with his cup of tea. And... For some reason, we're wearing the exact same outfit. I don't know why, but we are. Um, but I think what I love most about this photo is how completely uninterested he looks in me. <laughs> I mean, his body language, he has his hand in his pocket. He's kind of starting to turn away from me. There's no emotion in his face. Like, I might as well not even be standing there. Um, but if I'm completely honest with you, he probably looked that way because I had just finished insulting him. Um, I saw Hunter from across the room, and I thought, oh, what an attractive guy. I should go talk to him. And for some reason, I decided that my best move was to be a hypocrite and to insult him at church of all places. <laughs> so to my shock and disappointment, he did not ask for my number that day. Uh, and I was genuinely upset about that. But he did follow me on Instagram, and he slid into my DMs, um, as they say. And we ended up having our first date during lockdown at a grocery store, because that's all that was open. Um, and then sometimes, you know, we'd get together on a Sunday morning and we'd watch church online together because there was nothing else to do in a pandemic. Um, but it's important for us to serve in this community because this community has been a big part of our relationship. We started off as two non-religious Houstonians and we have transformed and been inspired to follow Jesus. But that transformation, it wasn't something that happened overnight or simply because we started dating 
My journey with Jesus and my experience with the church started many, many years before that. I grew up in a religious family, and we attended church very frequently. Both of my parents were leaders. And as I was approaching my teen years, the dynamic of my family really started to shift in some negative ways. And at the age of 12, I witnessed my biological father try to take my mother's life. And aside from the trauma of that situation, I also experienced the church walk away from us entirely. And at that point, that was the only community that I knew, and so them leaving just shattered me even more. And then a couple years later, um, our case ended up going to trial, and I watched as some of the leaders of that church testified as character witnesses in defense of my father. And I just couldn't understand how they couldn't support us. It didn't make any sense to me, and I was just shattered all over again. And I really did not consider myself to be religious or a follower of Christ after that. I had tried returning to church later on in my early adult years, but to be honest, I was still really closed off, and I was just jaded and angry. And so I didn't really get anything out of it that I, I, really, I really needed. But right before my 22nd birthday, I started training Krav Maga, which is where I work now. And eventually, I got to train with the owner of the school, a man named C.J. Kirk. And as we got to know each other and he learned my story, he felt like God was calling him to be my father, which I thought was kind of strange, and I didn't really know what to do with it. I was very guarded and angry and, and pretty rude. But deep down, I was also really lonely, and I really wanted a family and someone to call dad. And the next thing I knew, he was inviting me to spend Christmas Eve dinner with their family. The first time I got to meet anyone besides him it was a holiday. And then after that, we ended up coming to the candlelight service here at the story. It was actually the first one they ever held in the gym over at St. Luke's. And then week after week after week, they kept inviting me to church. And initially, I agreed because I felt a little bit of an obligation to go. I mean, nobody had ever taken such an interest in my life or, or really pursued me in that way. And they were being so nice, I figured it's just the least that I can do. And so I did. I went to church, and I sat there very begrudgingly with my arms crossed, and I was pretty zoned out to whatever Eric and Gio were preaching about that Sunday. You know, I was ironically living out the same hypocrisy that I hated. I wanted to be loved so badly, and I was so quick to call out the unloving experiences of my past, but I could hardly be bothered to show an ounce of kindness to anyone else. And the reality was that the anger I had towards my biological father and towards the church and even towards God had just left me directionless. And I felt I had no purpose beyond my suffering or even being angry about my suffering. And those experiences really molded my worldview. I was convinced that God had abandoned me. I saw the church as one of the biggest sources of misery in the world. I believed that any relationship but especially one that was centered in the church or in family was only capable of ending in betrayal. And I interpreted every event as some great injustice against me, regardless of how insignificant it was. I was living entirely under the assumptions of my painful experiences. And so naturally showing up and being involved in a church at that point in my life, it just seemed threatening to me. But as I kept getting invited and I kept attending you know, I expected to find the same hypocrisy and the same dishonesty. 
And I was surprised to find something very different about the community here at the story. And it's that they took their mission so seriously. Like their mission to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus wasn't an arbitrary statement that sounded good on their website. They hadn't selected non-religious people as some general group or category because they wanted to make them feel less than or other. Their mission was real and it was personal. And before I knew it, I experienced the story inspiring Meredith to follow Jesus and that, it just blew my mind. You know, this is really what God calls us into. He calls us, the believers, to attract others to the one true living God of history. He doesn't redeem us so we can live in hypocrisy. He redeems us so he can remind us of his mission for our lives and he can walk with us through that in the world. And so as a community of people who have been redeemed, I think it's important for us to not fall into hypocrisy, to be continuously reminded of that mission and to hold each other accountable as we live in obedience to it. I want to focus on a passage today that I think has really particular importance for us, and that comes from the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah was a prophet around the 8th century in Jerusalem, and he wrote this passage to the people of Judah. And at the time, they had been living in great hypocrisy. They were enforcing rules that they never followed. They were living completely opposite to the Bible and in complete rebellion against God. And eventually, they were torn from their land in Jerusalem and taken to exile, where they remained for 70 years. And so here, this is in chapter 62, Isaiah wrote to them anticipating their future deliverance and giving them a word from God, reminding them of their mission and cautioning hypocrisy. And this is what he said, Isaiah 62, 10. Pass through, pass through the gates, Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Remove the stones and raise a banner for the nations. So he tells them to pass through the gates, which is kind of an interesting thing to say at this point because Jerusalem hardly existed anymore. Babylon had come in and completely leveled the city after the people left. And so it would have been far easier for the people of Judah to just start over somewhere new instead of going back and clearing all the ruins and figuring out how to rebuild everything. But they were not supposed to abandon or ignore their history. Instead, God wanted them to continue their ministry from the place where they had forgotten him and from the place where they had been broken. And then Isaiah said to them, prepare the way and build up the highway. So they had to prepare themselves as individuals and as a community and then their city. And then once that was done, they would build highways so the nations could um, access the city. And then he gives them kind of another interesting directive. He then says to remove the stones. Now, you would have expected removing stones to have been a part of the preparation phase because you can't rebuild your city or have functioning roads with stones everywhere. But Isaiah is telling them to do it again, and even more specifically, he says, remove the stones. Remove the obstacles. Because look, all of the nations, they know Judah's history. They've seen them prosper in times of obedience. 
They've seen them struggling. They've seen them rebelling against God and not living out their faith. Then they saw them in exile and watched many of them continue to live in opposition of the God they claimed to follow. And all of those events led the nations to form assumptions about who their God was and who his people were. The same is true for us. It was certainly true for me. I had a lot of assumptions about faith because of the hypocrisy that I experienced in the church. And the people that we're trying to reach, the non-religious people in this city, I guarantee you that they have those assumptions too. And so when I think about what it means for us to be living missionally, encountering hypocrisy, I think of a community that is removing stones, that is removing obstacles that understandably form from the experiences with hypocritical believers. And so what I want to do today is just identify three stones, three of these big picture obstacles that stem from hypocrisy. And first, just to be honest about them as a church, that they do exist, understand how we can remove them, and then begin to live obediently again to God's mission to inspire people to follow Jesus. So the first obstacle is, or first stone, is obstacles about Scripture. And I'm, I'm probably not alone in this experience, but I grew up with a church that believed the Bible was the Word of God. But they held that view to such an extreme that it created this culture where you weren't free to disagree with anything or even ask a question. And it was the same people that would say things like, you know, you don't question the Bible, if God wrote it down, then it's true. If it's in the Bible, then it just is what it is, and we don't question it. And those same people would uh, simultaneously undermine such a high view of Scripture by avoiding difficult passages, by only preaching what was convenient or what they thought could help them control people. And this understandably creates obstacles for non-religious people. And if that has been your experience with Scripture, then it is not a far jump to assume that the Bible is unreliable, that it is irrelevant. And I would even go so far as to say that some people in today's world, because of this, believe that the Bible is dangerous. And so what does it look like for us as a church that does believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God, what does it look like for us to create a culture that's hospitable to people that maybe don't love scripture as much as we do? How do we invite them in in a way that honors the truth of the Bible, but is still full of grace and love? I think that looks like being a community that welcomes questions and doubts and pursues truth over our personal preferences. You know, in case you haven't noticed, the Bible is honestly kind of an outrageous book. I don't know how you can read it and not have questions. I'm a seminary student and I have so many questions. <laughs> Having questions is a natural consequence of learning and discovery and even relationship building. I remember being on my first date with Hunter, the one at the grocery store. We actually got kicked out because they only allowed 10 people in at a time. So we had a very romantic conversation by the garbage cans outside of Whole Foods. And in this time, he asked me three questions. He wanted to know about my faith, my political values, and my five-year plan. And I remember I was so impressed with how forward and intentional he was. I couldn't help but sit there and think, well, buckle up, buddy, because you're my five-year plan. <laughs> like, 
we're in that now, you know? But can, I, I can't imagine dating someone and not being allowed to ask questions or in your marriage or in your work or if you're a student and you're in school. It just, it wouldn't make any sense. I can guarantee you we would not be married today if we were never allowed to ask each other questions. And so we should expect people to be curious about what the Bible says of our faith. And we should also recognize that these questions are probably not just kind of random out there inquiries, but a lot of these questions are probably stemming from past hurt with the church. And look, it is diminishing and damaging when we just reject people for their questions and they're searching for answers and we send them away. We put our preferences aside. We respond like Jesus and we meet people in their questions and in their doubts with grace and with love and with no shame. And so we welcome questions and doubts and we pursue truth. You know, we live in this really interesting kind of post-truth moment where objective truth no longer matters and it's more and more mainstream to accept our broken instincts as what is true. And the obvious Danger here is that when we believe that we can discover and experience all truth through some form of self-actualization, then we never have a reason to live outside of ourselves. And don't think that that temptation doesn't exist in the church because it has in the past and it does today. But if we as a church are only preaching what validates our preferences, then it becomes all about us. And in the pursuit of ourselves, we reject Jesus and we reject other people. And then we do it all in the name of God as if that's what he wants us to do. And it's not, and it's disastrous. You know, in the last line of the verse that we read, Isaiah is very clear about the ultimate purpose of Judah's mission. He says here at the end of verse 10, it is to raise a banner for the nations. So earlier on in Isaiah chapter 11, he identifies the banner as a specific person. And he says that banner is the the future Messiah, that it is Jesus. And so he's telling them once they do all of that stuff, that they're not to raise the banner for themselves because they had already tried that. They tried pursuing their comfort and their preferences and all of the things that didn't offend them and it didn't work out very well. And instead, he says, once they go back and they do all these things and they remove those obstacles to remember that it's not about them, they're supposed to be raising up Jesus. And this is what we are called to do too, to put our preferences aside and to pursue him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so to pursue truth is to follow Jesus and all of his word. No matter how unpleasant, uncomfortable, or difficult it may be, we pursue the truth of Jesus. The second stone is obstacles about believers. Now, I'm sure at this point, you're not surprised to hear that I used to believe all Christians were hypocrites, and I really struggled with the way um, that I I encountered inauthenticity, that's a hard word to say, um, and dishonesty. But I always felt kind of like an outcast, you know, like I didn't belong because everyone's life was so perfect, and mine clearly wasn't, and if I was honest about myself, I wouldn't be accepted. And you know, if you were a believer and this is the experience that you've had, then I understand why you think you don't need to go to church to have a relationship with Jesus. And if you're not a believer, then I can understand why you would be apprehensive about following Jesus 
if it just means you eventually become another one of those church people. But Jesus surrounded himself with community. Walking in faith with other people was important to him. And so we have to look at how we can remove this obstacle in a genuine pursuit of the way that Jesus called us to live communally. And we do that by challenging comfort and building relationships. You know, about a year into my attendance here, I started to feel pretty bad for how uninvolved and disengaged I was in the church. And so I decided that for the next six months, if anybody approached me about joining a group or attending a social event or even serving on a Sunday, that I would say yes. And funny enough, Gio approached me the next Sunday and asked me to lead a Bible study with her. Um, But it turns out that those next six months was one of the most transformational times of my life in terms of my faith and my relationships. During that time, I wrestled with the discomfort and fear of being known. And I began to be honest about my pain, my past, and even the ways that I was struggling to believe in God. I realized that I wasn't the only one struggling with that. And people weren't judging me for lacking faith. Instead, I experienced encouragement and accountability and the development of deep friendships with people that I still have today. These relationships were crucial to the development of my relationship with Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Look, we are not naturally inclined to seek discomfort. We are not going to instinctually expose the things in our hearts that are easier left untouched. We need relationships that are going to help forge in us the courage to be uncomfortable over and over and over again. I have to be honest, I don't think that can be done by simply attending church. Building deep relationships doesn't happen showing up one time on a Sunday. Those relationships are built in weekly small groups and discipleship groups and showing up to serve on an outreach team together, stepping outside of ourselves. These kind of relationships require an ongoing investment in one another. And so if we really want to be a people that are showing the love of Christ to others, then we have to be willing to step out of our comfort zones and dedicating ourselves to truly knowing and loving one another. The third stone is obstacles about ourselves. You know, the obstacles or the assumptions that we carry about ourselves are often the hardest to let go of. Even if we manage to get past the others, we still tend to think that we've made too many mistakes in our life. You know, if people really knew the truth about who we were, they just wouldn't let us, they just wouldn't like us here. They wouldn't want us to be around. Or even in stepping out in service, we think, well, I just don't know enough about the Bible to do that yet, or I don't have the right skills or the right knowledge to be a part of something bigger than myself. And this is honestly a huge challenge because it requires so much trust and so much vulnerability, but I think if we want to remove this stone, we need to be willing to share our stories and serve through the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember that the people of Judah were told to go back to the ruins of their city, After they were delivered, they were told to go back to the place where they encountered pain and suffering, where they rejected God and they lived as though he didn't exist, because their history was not a source of shame that was meant to be forgotten. Their history is what made their redemption and the reminder of God's mission in their life so powerful. Look, I don't know if you are embarrassed by your past, 
Maybe you're ashamed or regretful or choices that you've made and you just don't feel like your story is worth sharing. And if that's where you are today, I just want to say that I understand that. But I also want to ask you this question. Have you ever considered that the hardest parts of your story are exactly what make it so meaningful? Psalm 107 says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their stories. Look, redemption in and of itself implies that there was a time when we were wasting away and we were living in darkness. Our story of redemption is not complete without acknowledging what we've been rescued from. And I don't think that this only applies to the things of our past that God has redeemed. I think this also means being honest about the way that we're struggling now and confessing our current sin. Look, don't go around pretending like everything's okay when it's not. I guarantee you that there is someone in this room that is struggling with the exact same sin that is crushing you. The thing that you, you believe you can't share in church because nobody would understand it, someone else is going through it. But suffering in the silence of your own sin, it isolates other people just as much as it isolates you. Remember that we're not slaves to that anymore, that we are now living in obedience to God's mission. And so that means confessing our sins to one another, praying for each other and living in repentance and then holding one another accountable as we live in obedience to that mission. You know, I remember being in my discipleship group and experiencing the Holy Spirit convicting me of my sin, of my, my anger, my hatred, the way I'd been treating people. And when I addressed that with, with God and I started moving forward with my community, my life changed drastically. I stopped resisting CJ's pursuits to be my father. I allowed myself to receive his love and I allowed myself to love him in return and I became formally adopted into their family. And then less than a year after that, I was sitting down having coffee with Eric, saying, this is totally crazy, but I think I'm called to ministry and I just don't know what to do. <laughs> Look, when we are honest about our stories and about our sin, we demonstrate the depth of God's love and the difference that can only be made through Jesus. And that story of love is lost when we pretend like we don't need it. So we share our stories and we serve through the power of the Holy Spirit. I can tell you that one of the easiest lies for me to believe is it's not that I don't need to serve anyone at all. It's more like I don't need to serve anyone yet. I struggled with that lie seven years ago when I started coming to this church, and I still struggle with that lie today. I honestly had a really tough time writing this message, and I kept thinking about how unequipped I was to be sharing it. I mean, sure, I've encountered hypocrisy in the church, but I'm also a hypocrite of all hypocrites. So who am I to be up here doing this? But we cannot consider ourselves committed to the church while rationalizing reasons to not step out in service. Because commitment without neglecting the care of others, that is hypocrisy. It doesn't matter who I am, and it doesn't matter who you are. What matters is who God is. And at the end of the day, God has a way to use each of us to advance his kingdom, not on the merit of our own skill or knowledge, but just through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
You don't have to be a certain kind of Christian. You don't have to have a certain kind of story. Serving looks like stepping out in faith and trusting that when God said we would receive the Holy Spirit and it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that's alive within us, that when he said it, he meant it, and that when we step out and serve, that that same power is going to show up and give us the ability and the capacity to influence other people to follow Jesus. Because that's really what it means to inspire. It means to put the Spirit into something. And so we commit to Sunday teams and we participate in the loaves and fishes ministry and serve the homeless in our community. We dedicate an entire weekend to Jubilee prison ministry, not because we're equipped to do it, but because the Holy Spirit will um, produce the results of our service. If we consider ourselves committed to the church, then we have to be committed to serving. You know, being a part of a church that lives missionally has made a huge impact on my life. I went from feeling lost and angry at the church and angry at God to being redeemed and reminded of his mission in my life. God used the mission of the story to shatter the obstacles that had formed from the hypocrisy I had experienced in my life. And now my perspectives are completely transformed. I know that the presence of God is with me. I see the church as one of the biggest sources of hope in the world. I have experienced and I believe in the power of Christ's love, and I see how God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Look, as a church, we have to take hypocrisy seriously and understand the extent of its damage. In Matthew 23, Jesus called out the religious elite and he said that their hypocrisy was shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's the extent of the damage. It's just, it's not that somebody just decides not to show up on a Sunday every now and then. It's that they walk away from it all because who wants to walk through that door when hypocrisy is the invitation? But look, when we are living missionally, we will experience the gospel of Christ confronting the contradictions in our hearts. We will learn to live with grace and with compassion for others. And it will be our transformed lives that can become the invitation for others to discover the radical love of Jesus Christ. Hypocrisy shuts the door to the gospel. And living missionally leaves that door wide open. And so we have to be honest with ourselves about the ways hypocrisy is settling into our hearts and allow today to be a reminder of God's incredible redemption, his mission for our lives, and hold each other accountable as we inspire people to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning so full of wonder and gratitude for the love that you give us. Even in our failures, you show up for us over and over again. Lord, I just ask that you be with each of us, that you reveal the things in our heart that we need to let go. Lord, that we would use today as a recommitment to our service of your mission, to love others and to inspire them to follow you. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen.